Hello everyone and welcome to Final Show. I'm John, the executive producer here, and I've just got a few pre-show notes for you. First of all, I want to let everybody know that our addresses have changed. Uh, our Twitch channel has changed from Sinstaku to twitch.tv slash finalshowfilms, and our YouTube channel has also changed to youtube.com slash finalshowfilms. Next, we want to thank our $20 tier supporters on Patreon, which is patreon.com slash films, by the way, if you want to go throw a couple bucks our way. That's going to be Cat Waterflame, Antitonic, Samantha Bates, and Maureen Monty. Thank you guys for that. Also, our website is in the process of getting updated. So go take a look at finalshowfilms.com. We've got Mara and Jeremy are working on updating all of our stuff there, making it look nice and like a modern website, and frankly, they know what they're doing far better than I or Austin ever did, so if you want to check out the things that are changing over there, you go do that. Follow us on Twitter, at Final Show Films, for updates uh, for all future things, including things that are going on with our website, and going on with the Patreon page, and things that are going on live as we stream them, uh, as well as our podcasts and everything else, so thank you very much for watching, y'all have a good day. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critical Thinking, episode 43, Dangerous De Dealings, which is episode 42 of Critical Role, which we're going to be go talking about this week on Critical Thinking. I'm John, the executive producer here at Final Show Films, at John A. Bates on Twitter, and I'm joined today by Jack. Hey, everybody, I'm Jack. I'm at Alt-F4Gamers on Twitter. And Jeremy. Hello, I'm Jeremy. I'm at Thomas 411 mania And again, as I said previously, this week we're talking about Dangerous Dealing, uh, episode 20, episode 42 of Critical Role, uh, starring Laura Bailey as Vexalia, Talison Jaffe as Percy, Liam O'Brien as Vaxel, Don Marisha Reyes, Keyleth, Sam Regal as Scanlon, Travis Willingham as Grog, and Matthew Mercer as everyone else. And this week, because I have, I didn't get the full amount of the thing watched because life occurs. Jack's going to be taking us through it. Okay. So let's get into what's been going on in Tal'Dorei since last we talked, which for many of you is possibly a month or maybe just a couple weeks because you're just catching up anyway. So Vox Machina having been based in and around the central city of Amman for a great while, uh, which is the capital of the region of Tal'Dorei, has had to run in with a number of relatively large chromatic dragons. Uh, Thordak, the, the self-proclaimed Cinder King, is currently residing in the center of the city of Amman, um, ostensibly extending mercy to those who are willing to feed his selfishness and greed and possibly start setting up some sort of cult of personality. Anyway, uh, in the midst of all this turmoil and crisis, the group of Vox Machina went into the city to see if they could salvage any survivors, allies, friends, anybody like that. Um, they ran into a member of the CLASP, which is sort of the uh, extant organized crime syndicate here in Amman uh, by the name of Garthok who helped them uh, pick their way through the rubble passing by their good friend Gilmore's shop finding him surviving along with a couple of other individuals and they managed to rescue Gilmore uh, Salda 
uh, who is the husband of Uriel, the former sovereign of uh, Taldore, who reigned in Amman. Salda's three children, uh, Uriel's children as well. And they managed to get uh, Salda, Sherry, Gilmore, and the kids back to Grayskull Keep, their castle built on the outskirts of the city. Um, during the rescue, they attempted to try and reclaim some of the potentially uh, scattered valuables from Gilmore's shop, given that he's known to keep a wide variety and assortment of magical and or powerful artifacts for sale unfortunately most of those had already been stolen uh or delivered to thordak before they were able to to reclaim any of those and then uh they managed to get back uh, to their keep to a relative place of safety and hunker down in their temple of Serenray, uh, where a number of the escaped refugees are currently trying to manage to scrape themselves together and figure out what the next step is in terms of surviving the sack of a mine. Which is what brings us to sort of act one of this episode. Vox Machina is trying to parse together some sort of cohesive plan in order to figure out what to do next. Um, Percy brings up the clasp, given that they've already encountered Garthok in the previous episode. It makes sense that that is on at least somebody's mind of, hey, there's an organization still working underneath the surface in Amman, and they might be a viable source of help at least percy takes a very pragmatic sort of materialistic uh self-interested look at it in that if we're looking to just survive let's find other people who have a vested interest in surviving here and try and work together with them self-preservation and greed are fairly predictable and at least uh, marginally reliable most of the time most of the rest of the group doesn't think that that's a great idea. Um, I mean, but... with with good reason. <laughs> I mean, the concept of, and this is one thing that I really enjoy in in especially city based sort of factional uh, type campaigns when you have a number of various organizations that are sort of open to use the idea of allying yourself with a less than ethical less than respectable but undeniably very effective organization is one that usually people are either strongly in favor of or strongly against and it's always been interesting to me when presenting players with this sort of choice or when I myself as a player am presented with this sort of choice, looking at the various mindsets of characters that I'm embodying and saying, all right, why is it that this individual would be vehemently opposed to the concept of, of allying themselves or working for or interacting with this type of individual, while other ones take a broader view on what might or might not be allowable and don't seem to be quite as bothered by the concept. Discuss. Yep. 
Yeah, I, mean, I really, I've, I mean, this is a kind of, these are the kinds of, of character revealing moral debates mm-hmm. in storylines, in role playing, etc. that I live for. Um, this is, you know, I, I've said it before, this is why, this is why I generally like Marvel over DC. This is why I, this, this is the kind of thing that you see in a lot of, um, uh, Joss Whedon shows that tends to suck me in mm-hmm. is you have people. These people are all generally aligned in the same direction and are friends and have goals and stuff. And you put them in a situation where they're forced to make a choice on something (coughs) and you differentiate them and you cover potentially some very uh, potent uh, uh, thematic ground by presenting them with a moral quandary. Often something like this. Are you going to make a deal with somebody who might be able to get something over on you, might have negative designs, uh, might be much more morally gray and you're bringing in some bad with the good, uh, that sort of thing. I live for this kind of thing. I think it's particularly useful when you are driving a narrative from a from a authorial perspective, um, to as a mechanic to use when you're trying to drive home a point, or when you're trying to make clear the morality of your story, because you have sort of two different approaches to this. You have uh, it's effectively what will you, what to you is worth doing in the name of the greater good, whatever the greater good is for your particular perspective and the greater good not necessarily being a uniform idea. Um, right. And right. so... Because yeah. one character's greater good can differentiate from yeah. that of another character. And so you have the, 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 the two primary ways that this revolves around is either you have the, uh, you have the Superman route, which is no, never, n- you know, you never lower yourself to that level in order to, if you, you know, if you, if you, if you decide to an understanding of, obviously there are going to be examples of stories where Superman has not gone this route because oh, Superman yeah. is a decades old character, but the standard of if you lower yourself to that level, then what is the purpose of the greater good that you're fighting for? You right. know, like, like mm-hmm. what is, what use is it in, in having a city that's left standing if it's not free? Like, yep. yes, you got rid of the dragons, but now Hitler's in charge. You know, that kind of a, <laughs> that kind of a thing. Always goes back to Hitler, doesn't it? I mean, it's the it easiest, does always way, go back it's to the Hitler. easiest way to sort of crystallize the idea. <laughs> I mean, why not? Why not like Charles Manson? Okay, okay. You got, you got like, rid of the you got rid of the dragons, but Stalin's in charge. Is that better? There you go. No, <laughs> that's at least different. That's, yes. <laughs> you got rid of the dragons, but Stalin's in charge. Uh, you got rid of the dragons, but Dick Cheney's in charge. <laughs> Can we have Hitler back? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so and and, and I'm sorry, did that, put Hitler down somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> we have him. He's a, he's in his comfy couch. Anyways, um, <laughs> my comfy chair. <laughs> oh my god! 
anyway. Um, but so you have you have that that, and then the other one is you know, any means justify the end. Like so yeah. long as mm-hmm. it doesn't. What's important is getting rid of the dragons or restoring the town. Whatever. I will work with the devil if that. That's your Ghost Rider approach. I will work with the mm-hmm. devil if it I will get me the thing. I was going to call it the Loki approach, but that too. Um, I re- now I really want to see a, a, a buddy cop comic with Superman and Loki. <laughs> I mean, yes. Does Loki exist in the DC universe? No, he does not. I know but... Ares does, but Ares is very much not Loki. Yeah, well, I, um... I know, but it's like they have gods. It's just. Which gods yeah. they have are? <laughs> I mean, kind of D- okay, DC has a version of the Norse mythology, but they very mm-hmm. conspicuously stay away from it most of the time <laughs> for obvious reasons. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so you have those, two, and, and and which one of those two you want to use for a narrative perspective? Yeah can inform the story you're trying to tell. I, I like I think of Daredevil a lot cuz I, I just recently watched season 3 of Daredevil and there's a lot of that where it's like if if you if you stoop to that level then you lose something of who you are and you won't ever be able to go back. Um yep. whether or not that's good is dependent on what you're trying to get across. Mm-hmm. In D&D, yeah, and a lot of that can depend on author as well, yeah. because it's frequently put in on the idea of, all right, yes, in this case, working with the clasp is immediate and efficient and will at least have a fairly quick result, probably. But what happens further down the line? Yeah. And that, that's generally where people start asking questions. In D&D... On the other hand, I have a problem with it, and not not with the with with it inherently, because it's it's a thing that happens. It's a thing that I've used as a GM, but encountering it as a narrative block it results in a certain amount of stereotyping of characters. Um, you get the phrase "lawful stupid," which comes from lawful good characters who don't want to take the easy route to resolve the problem. They want to stay true to their code. They want to follow this set of laws that they've set for themselves. And where in narrative fiction, when you're writing, that can often be painted as a heroic stance, as a this person will, you know, sacrifice the easy route to going, you know, to, to taking the harder road to be the more heroic individual. In D&D, it ends up being, you're being a roadblock to my efficiency. And that's that's when it ends up being referred to as things like lawful stupid, which can cause can cause drama in the party, yes, but can cause the wrong kind of drama in a party. Well, where okay, people are you know well now we're just not we're just never going to tell this person any of our plans because they're always going to have to be noble and lawful about it, and it's like that is a thing that I have seen happen. That does happen when this kind of narrative point comes across in D in particular it absolutely does it, it is something that, that that definitely happens um i would argue this is my problem with with the concept of alignment period but um which i am infinitely glad that 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 wizards has slowly uh um uh edition by edition moved away 
from the strict interpretations of 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 alignment that it was to be fair required more or less i mean unsaid mm-hmm. required to have during the satanic panic era yeah um you could if you strictly laid out alignment and said if you move away from this alignment you're losing experience points oh by the way you can't play evil characters then nobody could accuse you of corrupting your well yeah they could I mean, still they accuse, could still you, accuse but, but you had you had a, they at least they were doing what they could to you had forestall a the accusations yeah, yeah. you had a mechanism yeah. that you could point to and say look no. exactly yeah um but so that's my problem with alignment period is i most of the games that most of the games that that i've i've really emotionally latched on to over over the years i've played role playing games with the exception of D&D cuz i do obviously very much enjoy it um have been ones without alignment systems or have morality systems but are much more fluid and shades of gray. Mm-hmm. Uh, this mm-hmm. is why this is why I I I, I swear by uh, the humanity system in the world of darkness and things like yes. that. Um, mm-hmm. It's also <clears throat> I find, and this is going to be a problem with any with, with even the best role players. But I think the best role players, it's minimized and 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 the benefits outweigh it of uh, the, the whole, the, the, the wrong kind of drama thing where uh, those sorts of things can be viewed as a, a, a as a role-playing challenge. Yeah. And something where instead of, okay, we are just going to repeat this argument ad nauseum every session for the next 25 sessions or so. And, and or to, to, we're to, just going to keep this person in the dark, but talk about it out of character in front of them and cause that kind of frustration. Yeah, to, to clarify it's, what I mean by the wrong kind of drama is where your characters are so at odds with the way that they with the way that they want to approach a situation that you begin excluding the player yes. from participating by yes. locking mm-hmm. their character out of the discussion. That is yes, and that is not how you you should do that. Don't do that, players. And this is always this is always my 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 argument towards that, which is I hear all the time when that sort of thing happens. Of well, yeah, but this is what my character would do, and I always argue, yes, no, absolutely, it, it very well could be what your character could do. You are in control of your character, and if your if your choices are excluding somebody else's somebody else as a player from the game, you are making asshole choices. Yeah, yeah. Though to be clear, it ha- again, it happens yeah. in the it happens even with the best players. Yeah. I'm not saying that I've never done it because I I have I've done it probably in the last year. Yeah, nobody's perfect, but. So I, I I do want to be clear. This is a situation that can occur outside of D and D. Yes. Oh God. The, yes. the lawful good alignment isn't a mechanical thing. It's a I've no. made a character who wants F. to who has this code that they want to. Yes. That that I, or I want to stick to. Like 
yes. that's not a bad character to make. I just really no, hate when it all. gets denigrated to lawful stupid. It's like it's yeah. it's not lawful stupid if you have a code that you want to stick to. <laughs> well, and that to me that 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 goes into um how much somebody is uh, somebody really thinks through their uh, how their code affects them and that sort of thing because a lot of the time that I see somebody that I would label as lawful stupid it's somebody who didn't put any thought whatsoever into their code other than well this is what the paladin this is what this is what the code is for paladins in the book this is what I'm going with and I'm lawful good so I'm sticking to it always right and and for me as well any character with a code sticking to uh worth sticking to is not going to be is not going to be able to stick to it 100% of the time no matter how hard right. they try in a tabletop role playing game there is a level there is a buffer there's a there's a cushion there's a level of separation between the player and the character mm -hmm. and it's very easy as the puppet master to simply say well this is what my character would do and i'm just going to say that this is this is their choice because to be honest that player is no matter how good they are and how much they try they are never going to be in that character's shoes no matter how much loss your character suffers or no matter how much risk they might be taking in a given moment you the player are not risking that yep that loss and that risk is not actually applied to you so whatever the motivation might be you are insulated from consequence and therefore it's much easier to take a hardline stance whereas even in our own lives I myself come from a background where, you know, lawful good was sort of an assumption. Conservative Christianity, yay. Uh, and, you know, the, the idea of sticking to your principles was apparently the only thing that kept you out of hell, literally. Um, and even with that sort of thing... I can look at any number of instances growing up when people who professed a great deal of devotion and worked very hard at maintaining a very hard and fast, more or less real world lawful good alignment as far as they were concerned, when push came to shove, they had breaking points where they would give that up. Yep. And we're not even talking, you know, the sort of perils of life and death, refugees at risk of starvation and death by dragons and exposure type of stakes. We're yeah. talking much, much lower stuff. And that's enough to move somebody out of their professed unalterable principles without too much worry or justification. So anytime somebody... Uh, yes, I, I have I have very capital S, capital O strong opinions about people who think <laughs> that lawful good means their character will never break these rules. And I right. think most of you, both of you guys are on the same page with me is that, yeah, no, it's it's an excellent way to give yourself a quick sort of fallback guideline of how can I very easily get into the, the mindset of what this character would want in an ideal world 
but if you're running an interesting game it's probably not always going to be an ideal world yeah yeah and and also utilizing that as the losing the struggle storyline is a really good way to Mm -hmm. is a really good way to 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 have that you have to have that having that sort Mm -hmm. of moral struggle Mm -hmm. in the character what i again just to clarify what i don't like is when those kind of storylines in D D can as they often do lead to skipping past that section of the story and just making the assumption that oh they're never going to change their opinion we're just going to exclude them right yes that is a that is that Mm -hmm. is that that is a poor choice um no yeah i think as far as the morality goes and and i and we're jumping ahead a little bit too thematically as as to something that's coming but Mm -hmm. um as far as that goes like I know that a lot of people, and I, me too, um, <clears throat> tend to, if their characters cha- if their characters fail, it tends to be unintentional on the player's part. Yeah. Do mm-hmm. not be afraid to intentionally fail your moral oh, code. Yeah. Those are the most interesting character choices I can imagine. One of my most rewarding storylines I ever ran was a storyline that I to be clear, I I recommend I do not recommend people run this storyline for the reason that there is no player's guide for this. But in an online uh, uh, game, uh, Mage the Ascension game, um, I ran one of my one of my my major uh, PCs willingly, knowing how it was going to end through a fall into becoming the Fandy. Mm-hmm. You're gonna have to explain what that means for those of us that don't know what. So, that means. for the people who are not aware, the short version, because there's a long version that would would take forever. A Nefandi is basically the ultimate like fallen to darkness mage it is the person who ends up making a becoming an infernalist or making a deal with a devil or making a deal with the void nothingness in order to destroy everything that sort of kind of thing it is going from, uh, from you know, take the fall of Vader and dial it up to eleven. <laughs> yes, it is going from whatever you were, which in this case was a twenty-one-year-old, fairly innocent, naive, idealistic cult of ecstasy mage, to I am to 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 the as far into the opposite of that as run. Um, you you aged seventy years. Morally, <laughs> <laughs> and again, I, I I'm not saying run out and do this, mage players, because I said there's a reason that there's no Nefandi book. But at the time, it was me. This is these are the kinds kinds of storylines I really enjoy exploring in terms of personal darkness and morality and things like that it was a storyteller that i trusted like no one no other no other gm or storyteller i have ever trusted in my life Mm. 
Um, because otherwise I wouldn't be comfortable with that kind of thing. Um, and it was knowing how it was going to end going into it. We did, the character did not continue at that point after the fact was, I think, one of the keys. One would imagine, um, yes. But to, anyway, the point is choosing to making those choices of when this character was going to make the wrong choice and, and fall off their code and what that meant to this storyline overall, which was, it was, if you've ever played on, like in, in one of these on, in an online chat based setting, you know, it's, it's more sandbox sort of thing. It's more free for, mm-hmm. um, so knowing what that was going to do to affect other storylines and other characters and, 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 and things like that was incredibly rewarding, incredibly interesting. And on a much, you know, smaller scales than, you know, your soul is inverted inside out and you now want to destroy all of reality. Choosing to make those falls from from your moral code results in better and more interesting characters, in my in my opinion. So all that to say, <laughs> I mean, at least our diversion was on topic this time. It was mostly it like was, 95% you know, and, and I've always been, I've always been the type of player that if if my if my if my GM hands me the ethical dilemma and one of them seems more dramatically satisfying yep. in the short term, I dive headlong into that shit. Yep. You know, because, because partially because most frequently I see players do what Vox Machina does here. They're, they're presented with multiple options. One of which seems like the quick and easy way out, although extremely risky based on who they're going to have to deal with in order to to get where they're going. And they say, and now we're going to wait for something safer, something better. You know, there, there's the level of conservatism and, and caution that many adventuring parties tend toward. Um, you know, it's, it's the reason why a lot of times you'll have sessions of mostly just planning because we want to make sure we're definitely prepared for whatever fuckery this asshole behind the screen who just smiles and nods at us all the time <laughs> is going to have, hand to us. I'm you feeling know. very attacked right now. It, it's okay. I'm attacking myself as well. You guys have played Changeling with me. Um, <laughs> and, and with that while while i definitely understand the motivation both from player and character side on that i tend to be much more interested in those like you're like you're talking about jeremy those stories where they take the risk yep and then they have to dig themselves out of it or it falls down on top of them or and not you have to start somewhere out. else yeah right yeah mm-hmm. But on that line of 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 gathering further information and trying to find more options and information, Pike and Keyleth start scrying on various places. They discover that Singorn, which is the uh, city that Vax and Vex's dad is from, is just vanished um, and draw the conclusion that it possibly has gotten transported to the Feywild. We'll get back to that in a few episodes. Because Percy's um, a nerd. Because 
Percy's a nerd. Yes. <laughs> Percy is that kid who sat in the in the in the library and read everything he could about the Feywild, despite the fact that he doesn't have any elves around. Um they they check in on Whitestone, on Vasselheim, on all these other places that and and it's a it's a neat little montage of going them them following the trails back to the places they've been, places they've cared about, places they've interacted with to check on them. Um, and turns out that most of the stuff further afield, uh, either on the boundaries of Taldore or further out in the countryside or even on other continents, seems to be okay. This is a regional problem at least at this point these at dragons it's a regional at cataclysm it's a regional cataclysm it's it's not a global cataclysm it's just it's a it's a it's a you know it's a national issue. it's a national really, scale yeah. right i it's mean a national regional issue. cataclysms are generally what you want to have yeah no if you're gonna have to have a cataclysm you want it to be regional um, they start discussing travel options and things like that, uh, and they use uh, Keyleth to open a door through uh, transport via plants to get all the refugees out of Castle Greyskull, which I think was a great plan because, you know, there's a dragon literally three miles away, um, into Whitestone, which doesn't seem to have been uh, affected yet. Um, talks with some people up there and then they go back to this idea of talking with the clasp and seeing what sort of options they have and begin to push once more into the ruined city. On the way, they encounter uh, wyverns ridden by lizard folk, which they had, uh, they had touched on before as uh, followers of Thordak, uh, sort of his... his uh, small army that he's building and uh they they have to to ensure that these guys don't get back and report that we have independent parties moving through the ruins so there's a little bit of a battle and then they finally get to the entrance to the clasp now at this point, we start to delve more into certain backstory, particularly as regards the twins. Uh, Vax being a rogue, obviously, uh, has <clears throat> sort of sort of stereotypically more connections with the criminal underground, and some of those start to bubble to the surface. Turns out that Vax has had interactions with the class before which was partially the reason why he was so vehemently objecting to it uh when percy made the made the suggestion because he has history here he has background and it wasn't pleasant um and some of the some of the backstory that comes out you start to realize just exactly how sort of dark vax's background is which is an interesting way because there's a number of ways people can play rogues. Mm -hmm. But most recently, I feel like most of the players that I've interacted with, your mileage may vary, tend towards the more folk hero, Robin Hoody, you know, uh, does, you know, a scoundrel with a heart of gold does the wrong thing but for the right reasons kind I prefer of thing. I prefer the scoundrel with a heart of gold in a box on his desk see now I'm feeling called out 
<laughs> y'all, that's right. Y'all have y'all y'all never played with me playing a rogue before. That'll be fun if that ever happens. No, and and you guys have not played with me playing a rogue yet either. And come, gonna... motherfuckers. <laughs> Which is a perfectly acceptable way yeah, to, yes. to play play a member of the rogue class. Absolutely. Um, but I like when. I like seeing this sort of return to the fact of if you're the sort of character that stays out of sight as a reflex, whose entire strategy tends to be built around exploiting other people's weaknesses and flaws, who takes advantage of things at the best time for themselves and the worst time for everybody else something has probably occurred in that individual's past that has given them that sort of default approach to life's problems and Vax begins to expound this story of how someone who was affiliated with this organized crime syndicate literally put out a contract to capture Vex herself, Vex's sister. And what he did in order to ensure that she was not subject to whoever this apparently significantly predatory individual who definitely wanted her alive and not dead draw your own conclusions there, but none of them are pleasant. Um, What he did in order to make sure that that got resolved to where Vex never even had to know about it until now. Kudos for the wonderful way that that was played off without having to get explicit about it. Yes. Excellently done. You know, where... And and Liam does a does a fantastic job of of communicating the menace of a historical situation without going into necessarily all of the lurid details that one might have been able to do, probably out of respect, both in and out of character, out of respect for the audience, the players, the characters themselves, you know, the and 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 it's another mark i would say in in vax's very sort of protective nature particularly around the people that he cares about most pretty much tops that list almost all of the time yep but this is sort of but to go in debt to this organized crime syndicate in order to they brand him on the back with an icon in order to 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 symbolize the debt that he owes with them. And um, Vax is concerned that Vex going down there, some of the other people who may have been aware of this uh, deception having taken place will suddenly start to put two and two together and realize that, you know, a, a, a scam was pulled in order to protect this female half-elf that's been, you know... Uh, an operating member of Vox Machina for quite some time. Um, and all of these events, of course, happened before 
uh, the twins joined with with Vox Machina, and so they they didn't have necessarily the the backing and standing that they would have maybe needed if they were going to confront this in a more direct fashion when it had happened. And for me, this is one of the best narrative moments of this episode. Yeah. Um, you know, just all of the things surrounding Vax's interactions and the darkness of his past and him having to sort of go back and reconfront that sort of thing all over again. Um, but once sort of uh, once the twins are both on the same page, um, and they begin to to scout down and inside disguise happens and then doesn't happen and they meet uh, a ranking class member asking him to to help and get and provide information as as Vox Machina plans to to try and figure out how to defeat these dragons he makes a counter offer that i mean he's apparently quite willing to perform these services as long as they will grant him entrance into Vasselheim because Vox Machina has much more of a foothold there and the the clasp has has not really been able to to pierce those uh those obstacles themselves um and eventually the decision once again comes down to what choices Vax going to make um because there's 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 debate going back and forth and he's left as the deciding vote <laughs> and there's a fantastically dramatic moment in which he decides not to take uh the class offer which gives matt this excellent dramatic moment to present consequences immediately and i love it when this happens where it's not simply left hanging as a loose thread or an open-ended question, but Vox Machina is immediately told, you know, you are persona non grata as far as the clasp is concerned now. You are enemies of, of the syndicate. They walk out. So they are allowed to leave, but they hear the secret entrance that they came in through being collapsed behind them. Um, and with as much emotion as is going on, especially for, for Vaxeldon in this, <clears throat> he, he literally strips off his armor and has Keyleth burn the, uh, the brand that the class pit initially marked him with when, mm -hmm. when they bargained with him to save his sister off of his back, which is fantastic. Yeah. Well, that's a really good series of events. Um, mm -hmm. and it, it, it does, it does. We, we, we do have to talk about this part. Uh, have a have have a have a section that was a bit controversial. A bit the fan base. A bit. Um, I mean, yeah. Go for it. So, in the middle of the in the middle of the negotiations, uh, why the 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 big decision is ultimately left up to Vax, but. In the middle of this negotiation, in front of the people that they're negotiating with, Keyleth decides that now is the time to speak up and say, hey, maybe this isn't the best idea. We don't we don't want to give these people access. And to be fair, this was the first time that they this, they had just learned the uh, the um, 
Yeah. The 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 payment. The Vasselheim aspect. The, of va- the deal. yeah. The, the, this this was the first time that the Vasselheim aspect of the deal was presented, and Kaleth, rightly so, was like, "Hey, no, we shouldn't give them access to another city that they currently aren't in." Because that could be very bad for that city that currently does not have an underground criminal organization of this particular type. You know, the kind that kidnaps people and sells them to others for questionable activities. Um, you know. Uh, uh, and, and, and argues quite vehemently against this deal in the middle of the discussion. Um... Which is a valid thing to have done, absolutely. Yep. Uh, as as has happened in the past, obviously there are people that Keyleth Keyleth had an opinion, so people were upset about it. So people did not like it, <laughs> which is stupid. But you know, people be people. Uh, for me, for me personally, though, it brings to mind a a particular type of writing, and this doesn't apply. I was trying to clarify. This doesn't apply to this particular episode of Critical Role right. because. It's an improvisational storytelling thing, and and you can't control. There's no, there is no authorial voice controlling what the actors are doing. It's mm. just them doing their thing. Um, but in writing, in narrative, in film, and in television, this is a thing that does happen, where people will wait until the eleventh hour to suddenly voice an, a, a dissenting opinion. And I hate that particular writing trope. Because it is an artificial way to insert sudden last-minute drama into a scene that presumably already has a level of tension just to ratchet the tension up with no real end game. Yep. Um, It happens all the time in movies where someone will pause for just a moment right at the climax before doing or not doing the thing that they were already going to do or not do. And it's it's just an artificial way of stretching out drama when you don't have anything else to put there. It's um. <laughs> it's what I call um, uh, because it happens a lot in genre television. Yeah, a lot. <clears throat> and I've used this character as an example before because it. I know she still has a lot of fans and I am one of them, but Felicity Smoke is probably one of the most, uh, mo- has some of the most stringent critics among DC television fans out there. Mm-hmm. Um, because she will, ver- and this sort of thing, she does it a lot. And sometimes it's justified by the writing, and sometimes it's not. Um, And I think the key is, it's always justified by the writing in the writer's mind. Yeah. The problem is, you brought that up seven episodes ago. (laughs) You've done three episodes of the week since. And you had to focus on other characters and this and that and the other. Or maybe she's just, there's just been too much that's been going on. Whatever the reason, it's been so long since it's been voiced 
it seems like something that didn't bother that character anymore. It seemed like a stance that they had backed off of. And then mm-hmm. when they come up to you as the writer, it makes complete narrative sense. This is the same thought that she's had the whole time. Or he's had, or they've had, or whoever the character is. But if you, and, and, and it's not a situation where, like we were talking about earlier about, about you know, when, when characters have are at moral impasses, it's not something you want to bring up every single chapter or every episode, because at that point it just gets, there's an entirely different reason why that character is frustrating and annoying. Um, but you have to keep that thing sort of present with that character throughout the storyline and find a way to make sure that you're reinforcing that mindset. If you're going to have it be a pivotal point, you know, a, a pivotal stance of that character's for a major plot point going uh, at some point. If you completely ignore it and then this sort of thing happens, well yeah, people are going to be people are going to be pissed and feel like it came out of nowhere and it was lazy story storytelling and all that kind of thing because it might not be lazy. I mean it might be lazy storytelling, but it might not be lazy storytelling. It might just be that the writer does not have a good perspective of how obvious their character's motivations are. Mm-hmm. And whether still yeah, you, and whether you, or not there was you can I was gonna say you and, can oh. justify the the eleventh hour descent yeah. if that's something that you've been building toward the whole time. If the character that that is in the forefront has been racked by this sense of indecision and tension and what do I do in this situation and who do I side with, where do my loyalties lie, blah, 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 blah. And then at the moment, right before the decision maker, they've been they've been abstaining all of this time and then finally can't take it anymore and just go. Sure. That's that's a perfectly justifiable sequence of events. But right. when you haven't signaled that that conflict, that internal conflict enough that the audience is aware of it, then yeah, it comes off as just, and then we needed a tense moment. Yep. Yeah. So this chuckle fuck jumped in and said something. Yeah, and so it's like I said, it, it to to clarify whether something feeling like lazy writing has no actual implication as to how much effort you put into it because you could have put all the effort you possibly could into what you think is the most uh Shyamalanian-esque twist you have ever written don't get me started on Shyamalan twist and if it's it but if it feels lazy if it feels like you just did it because why not that's the impression that's going to be left. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Remember, we the audience cannot see what's inside your head. The audience does they not know what you show them. Yeah, they mm-hmm. do not know the things you know. They only know the things you show. Which is a thing that one of my screenwriting teachers used to say a lot. <laughs> I mean, your screenwriting teacher isn't wrong. No, <laughs> but it's it's just it's it it's a it's a really fun little mnemonic um, mimetic way to mm-hmm. remember that idea. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> anyway, 
Continue. But yeah, and 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 I think for for there there is an element here of people feeling like Keyleth just jumped in at the last moment with something completely out of left field as far as the rest of the the group was concerned. Um, that's not to say that's what she did, yeah, and but it, it's difficult. And, with... and and there, I would say there are probably an equal number of people who felt like this was not out of left field. Yeah. yeah. There, and it's it's more difficult in a in a, D &D, in, a, in a in an improvisational storytelling sense because you don't want to hog the spotlight with that repeated right. argument mm -hmm. of I don't think we should do this I don't think we should do this I don't think we should do this so you have to sort of pick and choose the time of best opportunity to voice your dissent yep. and when there's that many yeah. players it's you know there are less and less of those opportunities um, mm -hmm. yeah. In, and in, and, in, and you, you, yeah, you don't always have the chance necessarily. Yeah. To... So it's it's completely understandable why this sort of thing would happen with Keyleth in this situation. I don't mind it happening in this particular situation, but it is something that people will do in writing over and over again when you do have complete control over everything that's happening. <laughs> yes. And plenty and op of opportunities. Plenty of to opportunities signal. to have gone you know, gone backwards and said, hmm, maybe that character should have voiced that opinion here, not there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I tend to be, and I tend to be a little bit more forgiving of it in television, for example, than I am in, in narrative, in long form writing, let's call it, novels, etc., etc., etc. Because unless you're pulling a Westworld, and by that I mean they were had every script of Westworld written before Westworld season one, and I think I think season two written before they filmed a single minute of 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 the season. You are on a somewhat hectic schedule to get your write to get your writing done, so you don't necessarily have time to go through and examine every single character motivation. And say, okay, well, did we reference this? The, the, did we reference this three episodes ago, which for them was probably three weeks ago, and in the middle of all the other stuff that they're doing because they're the showrunners and they're also producing and all this other stuff. Whereas when you're writing a novel, sure, there are deadlines. Absolutely, there are deadlines. But those deadlines are a little more extended, probably is the best way to put it. Um, and you should maybe take a little more time to examine those motivations and make sure they... Yeah. Mm -hmm. Continue, Jack. And so... At this point, you know, they they have pretty officially put the final nail in the clasp coffin as far as what their options are going to be. Um, and with, you know, Vax's emotional enemas being finished. Um, we come up with such great they, terminology on this show. Don't we, though? Don't we, though? Oh, I didn't even get to talk to you guys about the staff made out of tongues. Um, legit. Uh, the but they staff. head back to Grayskull Keep. Tongue staff, yeah. A stick made out of various tongues from people sewn together. 
still kind of moving a little you know, bit. If it, yep. if it's That's a, a thing. If with a particularly heavy amount, hefty amount of tongues, it could be called a tongue's ton. A, a potential. Fuck you. If, if, you had enough, <laughs> if you had enough mass on it. Yep. But anyway, <laughs> despite weird necromantic objects that may or may not have been utilized by the clasp in the past, uh, they return to Grayskull Keep um, next morning, utilizing the transport via plants again, I believe, to get Gilmore and the Taldores and the rest of the refugees and staff, everybody out to Whitestone. We did we did um, skip over the fact that at the beginning of the episode, they did transport a bunch of refugees to Whitestone. I think um, I mentioned that. But anyway, after, yeah. after that's all when the Percy scrying. went and talked to his... Talk to Cassandra and make yeah. sure, hey, are there a yeah. dragons here? Oh, good. There's no dragons here. Okay. Um, but yeah, they finish the evacuation of the people they at least have uh, nearby um, and set out the next day for the Slayer's take, returning to Vasselheim <laughs> themselves um, in search of more answers, more assistance, because to be quite honest, I feel like Vox Machina leaves this episode, this chapter, in a very sort of okay, what the fuck now kind of moment. Which which is a which is a good which is which can be a great note of resolution to leave a single sequence on in fiction of giving your your heroes your protagonists that moment of okay we have a huge problem and literally no idea how to solve it what the fuck yep because it's an excellent framing sequence especially for the viewers as well if they are used to seeing you know buffy kick the ass of literally everything that crawls out of the ground in sunnydale every week when she gets to that moment of holy shit, this is not something I am prepared for. And then you give your audience a week to just let that percolate for a little bit. Rubber vamp. Yep. Just don't do what they did with the Uber vamps and, 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 you know, six episodes later. The, the ninja the, problem? The, neo, the neonates are just beating the shit out yeah. of them, no problem. Um, the ninja problem. One Uber right. vampire is a is the worst thing ever. A thousand Uber vampires, yeah, and to be so fair, not. to be fair, a thousand Uber vampires and a spell that awakened ever and empowered every right mm-hmm. in the world. But still, yeah. it is true yeah. though. It's like mm-hmm. the the more enemies that there are, the weaker they yep. get. Yeah, the ninja the rule of, is the thing. A, yes. Law of conservation of ninjutsu. There's yep. an equal amount on either side, and therefore whoever has the fewer numbers wins. Um, but yeah, and it's an excellent setup point for what is going to happen next episode um, involving a certain sphinx that we've met once before. Um, yeah, so, so what actually did happen at the end of this episode? They literally, they travel into the Slayer's Take, they talk with some people, they talk about who they're going to meet next week, because it being a produced show, they know who their guest characters are going to be. Right. Um, and basically, we sort of get the lead in that, hey, Cash and Zara are coming back. Um, and then they just kind of crash and for them. And all night. rejoiced. Cash yes. and Zara are coming back, and also, things will happen next week. Stay tuned. Yep. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. 
This was, uh, oh, also in the middle of all that, they fought some wyverns. Yeah, we, we talked about them we murdering that. the wyverns. Did we? Yeah. I, yep. I keep fr- I, 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 I seem to have been blanking out at certain sections of this whole episode. We've just been like... <laughs> <laughs> also, they went to Whitestone. Yeah, we mentioned. Also, they killed some wyverns. Yeah, we mentioned. Okay, just wanted to clarify. Yeah. Normally, mm-hmm. I'm the one doing the talking, so it's like... Not, oh, yeah, not... no. I, I know your pain. <laughs> so it's like not being... Not like I haven't done that before. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. So used to being the one... Uh-huh. knows all the things but yes everybody's favorite guests will be back next week yep. to help our our wonderful incompetence figure out what the fuck to do about a whole bunch of big old dragons and to make the conversations that much more awkward oh there's some fantastically awkward stuff yep. in the making this I was always uh, always fun this was another one of those episodes where not a whole lot happened like like overall not a whole lot happened um, they went from they went from Castle Grayskull into Amon and then back mm-hmm. with a detour to White with a detour like like a five minute detour into Whitestone and then onto the Slayer's Take. Well, this is but, this is what we what 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 is generally referred to among uh, uh, TV reviewers as a table setting episode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you are. You are putting everything out for the uh, and putting the right pieces in place and And tying up certain loose ends for, yeah, Mm cleaning, cleaning things up, etc. for the feast you're about to have. Yep. Narrative. And so they've Uh they've they've wrapped up the last refugees from Iman. They've wrapped up what's happening in Whitestone. They've wrapped up the clasp uh, for the moment, and unfortunately for Garthok as a guest character, <laughs> for Garthok, Garthok shows up, has half an episode, yet. and then leaves and will never come back. <laughs> Great concept, just didn't get the chance to do anything. Yeah, as you say, ex- execution kind of kind of faltered there, just a touch. It happens, unfortunately. Yep. But uh, anyway, so next week, next week we'll be back with episode forty-three. Of I mean, next week we're in people pee in next, a lake. <laughs> next, 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 next week, ostensibly asterisk. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, with return to Vasselheim. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, so we'll see you guys next time. Say goodbye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.